0: Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Let's give our careful attention to God's holy and inspired word. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may arise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord. Will I seek? Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And our New Testament reading from the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, as we begin a, a short series uh, in the mornings uh, from the Gospel of John chapter 14. So John 14, 1 through 6. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go you know and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray together. O our God, we pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word by the power of your spirit for our good and for Christ's glory, in whose name we pray. Amen. When you, by the time you get to John chapter 14, in John's Gospel, tensions are running very high in Jerusalem. It's, it's the time of Passover, so thousands upon thousands of, of people have gathered there in Jerusalem for the, for the feast. Roman soldiers are there to, to make sure peace is kept. Um, Christ, just a few days prior to this, um, has raised Lazarus from the dead and after he does that then, then the, the Jewish authorities who oppose him plot to kill him that tension is rising uh, then Christ uh, comes into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry the fulfillment of prophecy of the people cry Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord they're saying this is the, this is the Christ the son of David who's come and, and then Jesus goes and he, and he preaches to them. And in John chapter 12, he tells them that he himself is going to be lifted up. The Son of Man's going to be lifted up. He's talking, of course, about his crucifixion. And he's saying things the people, the people don't want to hear. And So even as they've, they've just celebrated their coming Messiah, they've decided this isn't the kind of Messiah they want. And, and many, many of the people reject him and turn from him. And they're blind and deaf to him. And at the end of chapter 12, Jesus leaves them. He disappears. He just takes his 12 disciples with him to celebrate the Passover. So there's this tension in Jerusalem. Uh, It's it's ready to boil over. At the same time, Christ is meeting with his disciples in the upper room to celebrate their Passover meal. And and as they do, that tension that's in Jerusalem around them can be felt here too. There's this feeling of uneasiness in the room as you read these chapters. There's There's a heaviness to the atmosphere here. Now, the people that Jesus is, is reclining with his disciples at table here, they're, they're sitting in a, a semicircle Roman, Roman style around this table eating together. And, and, and there's, no, uh, there's no servant who's washed their feet yet. And, and this is unthinkable in that society that you'd eat without washing the dust and dirt off your feet. So, so Christ gets up and he stoops and he wraps a towel around his waist and he goes and he washes their feet. And it's surprising, it's, it's even offensive in a way, that Christ would do this. It's a great uh, step of humility for him. This is the job of the lowest servant. And so this just adds to the atmosphere in the room. Of, of, there's, some, there's, there's something strange going on here. There's, there's a tension here. And it would have fixed the sharpest possible focus of the disciples on Christ. And then, and then he starts to speak. And he says, chapter 13, verse 21, One of you will betray me. Again, silence. Who, who, who is it? The, the disciples look at each other wondering who it is. Some of the other Gospels say, they, they ask, is it I, Lord? They, they can't believe this, that one of them is going to betray Christ. And then it gets worse. Jesus tells them after that that he's leaving them. He says, you'll look for me, but you won't be able to find me. You won't be able to follow me yet. Where I'm going, you can't come yet. Now, the disciples left everything to follow Christ. They left their livelihoods. They left their families. They left parents. They, they left everything to follow Christ. And they've been with him nearly constantly for three years, attending to his every word, seeing, seeing him do these miracles, hearing him talk. Their hopes uh, are wrapped up in him. Their world is wrapped up in him. He himself told them to come follow me. And now he says, where I'm going, you can't follow. You can't come. So the tension continues to mount and, and the air of, the atmosphere of, of heaviness continues to mount. And then Peter says, I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. You say we can't follow you, but I'm going to die for you. I'll, I'm ready to, to follow you anywhere. And, and Jesus says, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you've denied me three times. You can imagine, again, the, the stunned silence that would have been in the room as Christ said those words. And imagine what the disciples are feeling. Peter is going to deny him before tomorrow morning. There's this great heaviness in the room. What can be about to happen that one of them is going to deny Christ, one of them is going to uh, uh, betray Christ, and all of them are going to abandon him, and no one will be able to follow him. So their hearts, their hearts are troubled. That's the context of this chapter. John 14, the disciples' hearts are troubled. The troubled heart, of course, is is nothing new to the disciples. It's something we ourselves know well. The the great 19th century evangelical uh, J.C. Ryle said this, commenting on this passage. He said, the troubled heart is an old disease. He says this, heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. No rank or class or condition is exempt from it. No bars, no bolts or locks can keep it out partly from inward causes and partly from outward, partly from the body and partly from the mind, partly from what we love and partly from what we fear. The journey of life is full of trouble. Even the best of Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace and glory. Even the the holiest saints find the world a veil of tears. Job 5, 7 puts it this way. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. So picture a campfire. And the sparks are popping up and they're, they're flying up in the sky. Job 5.7 says that's, that's what man is like for trouble. It's, it's inevitable that that will happen. Man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. It's automatic and unavoidable because of our sin. So what is it that, that is troubling our hearts? Brothers and sisters, this morning, what is it that threatens to trouble your heart? What is it that has has your heart stirred up, as it were? Tempest tossed. Jesus sees here in the text that his disciples' hearts are troubled. They're, They're stirred up, and he does not want them to be. He knows they do not need to be. And, brothers and sisters, Christ sees our hearts, he sees your heart, and he does not want your heart to be troubled. And in fact, it's, it's more than that. He, he knows your heart does not need to be troubled. And he says, your heart must not be troubled. Because he's provided the remedy for it. The one remedy for the troubled heart. That's our theme this morning. We do not need to have troubled hearts. We do not need to fear. We're commanded here not to fear. Because no matter how, how much it might appear otherwise, Jesus will not fail to take us to himself. He gives us the remedy, the one remedy for the troubled heart. What is that remedy? Jesus tells us plainly right here in verse 1 of John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So we, were, we began talking about the tension, the, the uneasiness, the ominous atmosphere in that upper room. Into that atmosphere, the Lord speaks these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. You can, you can feel the tension evaporate as he says that. As he calms their troubled hearts. He's, he's saying this. Don't let circumstances stir up your heart and dominate your heart. Don't let fear dominate your heart. Now, But Christ is not just saying here, just keep calm and carry on. He's not saying just be a stoic about your problems. Don't let them get to you. He's not pretending that there aren't real real problems facing the disciples, that he's not pretending they're not about to suffer immense things as he is. So he's not calling us to, to stoicism of any kind here. He's not trying to give us just a just a painkiller that takes away the symptoms of a troubled heart. He's he's trying to give us the real remedy that gets to the, the root of the problem. And so he says, believe you believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, depend on me, trust in me, fixate on me. Don't fixate your heart on, on the problems that it faces. Fixate your heart on the Lord Jesus. Remember who I am for you, he says. Now that's the only remedy there is for a troubled heart. To fix our faith on Christ. Believe in me, he says. It's remarkable, isn't it, that Jesus says that to his disciples here. Think about what is about to happen. They're going to see Christ in just a few short hours, betrayed, bound, tried, whipped, crucified, and buried. They're all going to run and scatter like sheep without a shepherd in a few hours. And the, the temptation is going to be he's not trustworthy. He's proving to be a sham. Jesus is getting them ready for this. He's saying, believe me, don't forget who I am. So he, as he does this, he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, you believe in Yahweh, believe also in me. He's saying, I am God in the flesh. He's equating belief in God with belief in himself. Even as he's going to the cross, he's telling his disciples, believe in me. Even though it looks like weakness, I am God as I go to the cross, the God-man. Brothers and sisters, maybe you, maybe you hear the command here, uh, trust in Christ. It sounds like a pat answer. You, you think, well, yes, of course I trust in Christ. Of course I put my faith in Christ. I've prayed the sinner's prayer, confessed my sins, and put my trust in Christ. But I still have a troubled heart. Well, faith, faith in Christ is not something that's a once-done deal. It's not something static in the past. It's, it's something that, that can ebb and flow. It can be weak or strong. It, it, it's a process of growing in our relationship of dependence on the Lord. So are we doing that, brothers and sisters? Do you trust Christ more now than you did three years ago? Can you see progress in, in, in trusting him more, depending on him more, not just when things are good, but when things are hard and, and painful, even when he seems absent or God seems not to be acting the way you think he should be? Believe in God and believe in me, says Christ. Trust me when things look bleakest. That's the only remedy brothers and sisters, for a troubled heart, to believe in Christ. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He could, of course, but he doesn't. He draws out certain aspects of this remedy for us. He he takes it and he starts applying uh, applying it to his disciples' hearts here, drawing them into this deeper trust and deeper faith, unpacking these words. So let's look at what he does here as he unpacks this idea of this remedy of trusting in Christ for a troubled heart. We see four things here. You see them there on the, on the wall behind me. The first, a place for you, in verse 2. Jesus says, verse, verse 1, believe in me. In particular, he says, believe this, verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. This is the message of this verse. Jesus is like a host preparing a, a place for, for, for his guests to come. He's getting everything ready. A, a better uh, metaphor might be he's like a, a husband who's getting a house ready for his bride to be. He's, he's going over every detail. He's making, plan, he's, he's, he's making uh, uh, every effort to make sure everything's perfect. Everything's arranged just the way his bride will like it best. He wants his bride to know that she has a place to go. That he has provided for everything and she has a place where she'll belong and she'll be safe and she'll feel at home and loved. That's what Christ is telling us. What's the place? Jesus calls it here in the text, my father's house. God's dwelling place is his House That, of course, is referring back to some Old Testament things. One of the things that we see there is what we read earlier in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I've desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. What is the house of the Lord? Well, in the Old Testament, it's the temple. We see this in the rest of verse 4, Psalm 27. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's God's house. In the Old Testament, it's the temple. And the psalmist's desire is to be where God is, to never leave where God is, to have that be his house. Now, that earthly temple of the Old Testament, of course, is pointing to a heavenly one, a heavenly house. And what's that house like? Well, it's the place where God dwells. It's the place where God is in all his beauty and all his perfections. Jonathan Edwards calls heaven a world of love. And that's what it is. That's what our Father's house is. It's where God, three in one from all eternity, uh, uh, loves his people. This heavenly house, this is the goal that Christ uh, is encouraging his disciples with here. And this is, this is what the goal has always been for God's people. To have communion and fellowship with him in his house, in his dwelling place. So Jesus is telling his disciples this. He's saying, I'm going to the heavenly temple. I'm going to the heavenly house of God. I'm, I'm the son who's perfectly pleased the father. And so he is welcoming me there. And, and you're going to follow me. I'm, I'm going to get it ready for you. I'm going so that I can bring you there too. Because there's not just a place for Christ there. There's a place for all those who are in Christ. For every single one of God's people. It has many rooms, many mansions, the text says. And notice this. Jesus says, it's for you. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. This isn't just a generic reservation. It's not as though he's just prepared for a certain number of people and first come, first served. Or he's just prepared a place for his church. No, he's, he's prepared a place for you, He says. For for you individually, particularly as a part of His church, yes. But for you, brothers and sisters, He He, as it were, has a has a seat at the table with your name on the card. Your name, if you're trusting Christ, this there's a place for you that He's prepared. If we, if we don't believe this, brothers and sisters, if we don't rest in Christ for this as the one who's prepared a place for us in our heavenly home, then of course we'll be. Uh, 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 troubled in our hearts of course our hearts will be stirred up and tempest tossed because we'll be investing in a home here and now a home that is so fragile that anything and any uncertainty can shake but if we're resting and trusting in christ and and if our place is there where he is there's nothing that can touch that and nothing that can trouble that hope So that's the first thing we see. Christ says, trust in me. I'm preparing a place for you, a place that nothing can threaten. That's the first aspect of the remedy for the troubled heart here. The second is this. It's a person for you. So a place for you and now a person for you. Verse 3 says this. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself Christ has been telling his disciples, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. But but now he, he shifts the idea. We would expect him to say, if I go prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to that place. That's not what he says. He says, I'll come again and take you to myself. So the place for you has become a person for you. The house, as it were, has become the husband Jesus has already been talking about this in John earlier, John 2, 21, early in the Gospel. Jesus says that the temple is really his body, that his body is much more the true temple than the Jerusalem temple ever was, because this is where God dwells. We see this again in Revelation 21, 22, uh, John's vision of the heavenly city. He says this, I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. The temple is the Lord. The temple is Christ. The place is the person. So yes, Christ says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And and the the main point is that it's going to be me. It doesn't mean, of course, that our heavenly home is like somehow just literally Christ's body. We know there's going to be a new heavens and new earth, a real dwelling place. But the center of that the heart and core of that place is Christ. Again, think of that metaphor of a husband getting his house ready uh, for his bride-to-be. He's, he's furnishing the home. He's agonizing over every little detail to make sure it's perfect for her. But in a, in a sense, she doesn't care about the house or the details. She, she won't even notice the house. She's only going to notice it as a reflection of her husband. He's the whole point for her. Brothers and sisters, is, is, is Christ and getting Christ the whole point for you? Would heaven be heaven for you if Christ were not there? John Piper has this excellent book, God is the Gospel. And he has in that book a really uh, devastating question. Let me read it. The critical question for our, our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? This is the goal. Having Christ, the person, is the goal of all our salvation. This is why Christ died, not so that we could have just a place, but so that we could have fellowship with himself. There's this, uh, there's this wonderful hymn, we're going to sing it later in the service, by uh, Ann Cousins, uh, adapting the words of Samuel Rutherford, and it says, one of the verses says this, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Is that your desire, brothers and sisters? Is that what you long for, that Christ would take you to himself? If it is, then your heart will not be easily troubled. Our hearts are troubled when their idols are shaken. Our hearts are troubled when the thing I love most is threatened. What can threaten Christ? And what can can shake the certainty when he says, if I go, I will come? He has gone. He will come and take us to himself. The worst imaginable suffering in this life will only bring me closer to him. It won't shake that. That's what Christ is telling his disciples here in verse 3. But that's only part of it. There's more that he goes on to say in verse 3. And that's our next point. Not only a person for you, but a purpose for you. Jesus tells his disciples the reason he's doing this, the reason he's going away, preparing a place for them, taking them to himself, giving himself to them. Verse 3b he says this, That where I am, you may be also. It's one of the things I remember most from a sermon growing up uh, from my pastor uh, was, was this point that I'm about to make here on this verse. We we already asked this question. um, Would heaven be heaven if Christ were not there? Would heaven be heaven for you if there were no Christ there? But there's another uh, side to that, and it's this. Jesus is saying to his disciples, heaven would not be heaven if you were not there. He doesn't want to be in heaven apart from his bride. And that's not a generic bride. It's you. Now, of course, God is... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from everlasting to everlasting and does not need us. He is perfectly satisfied without us. did not need to make us because he was lonely or anything like that. But he has made us and he has set his love on us. And it's a real love. It's a particular love. And so it's not wrong to say this. It's biblical to say this, that, that heaven would not be heaven if you were not there. That Christ would not be Have joy in heaven if you were not there. This is his love for us. Not a generic love, but a particular love. It's what he came to do. In the words of another great hymn, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. That's why he came, that we might belong to him, because he loved us. And again, do you see what this does for a troubled heart? It says, You are loved with an everlasting love. By the grace of God, you are destined for an everlasting world of love in the presence of the King of love, our Lord Jesus. Christ says, Believe in me. Believe that I love you, and it's my desire and purpose to take you to myself so that we can be together in glory forever and ever. And what can long trouble a heart that is satisfied satisfied? in that and resting in that. So Jesus has been telling his disciples about where he's going, why he's going there. And now he turns, finally, to reassure them of the way there. And he tells them in in the rest of the verses here that he's made a full provision for them to get them to this heavenly home. And that's what the remainder of our text is concerned about. Verses 3 through 6. Excuse me, four through six. So this is the, the fourth aspect of Christ's remedy for a troubled heart, a full provision for you. The disciples here uh, remind me of, of kids as they are asking these questions. They, they seem like they're, they're anxious, like kids who are anxious about their parents going away. You can imagine a dad, perhaps, who's the family's going to move. So the dad, dad says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go first. I'll be there for a little bit. Uh, I'm going to get the house ready. I'm, I'm going to finish some things up. I'm going to get us settled there. And then the family will come. And you can, you can imagine how a, a child would, would feel so he's saying goodbye to his dad as his dad traveled maybe some states away to get the place ready. There's anxiety there. So, so Christ is, is reminding me of, of that kind of thing as he speaks to his disciples here. He actually calls them little children in John thirteen thirty three. So he's trying to give them every possible reassurance Remove every cause for anxiety for them. He's saying, I'm getting the place ready for you, and I'm going to make absolutely certain that you get there. Because the whole point is that I have you there with me. So he says, I'm going to make a full provision for you to get there. He says, verse 4, you know where I'm going, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas still isn't so sure. So verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? It sounds as though Thomas hasn't been listening, doesn't it? That, that Christ has been talking about where he's going and the way to get there. But, but Thomas here seems to be thinking in terms of this world. We see this uh, occasionally in the Gospels. The disciples take what Jesus says kind of at a literal earthly level rather than seeing the spiritual and heavenly meaning to his words. But Christ is patient with him. He says in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are wells of meaning in those words uh, that we could spend much time on. But but most fundamentally, in the context of of the chapter here, what Jesus is saying is this. I have made a full provision for you. I I have provided everything you need for salvation. He says, first, I am the way. So he's the way to God. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a guide along the way, showing us the way. But he himself is the way. He is the road, he's the bridge, he's the stairs, whatever you want to think about. He he is the the path to God, the only path to God. He's he's saying to Thomas, you do know the way, because I'm the way. You know me, and I'm I'm the only one who can bring you to God, bring you to the Father's house. If you know me, you know how to get there. I will take you there. I am the way. Well... We might expect Christ to stop once He said that because he's answered Thomas's question, hasn't he? Thomas said, how how do we get there? What's the way? He says, I am the way, but Christ wants Thomas to know more. So he goes on. He says also, I am the truth. And he's saying, I am utterly dependable. I am rock solid, unchangeable, true, and you can rest on me and trust in me. And again, think of what's about to happen. Christ about to go to the cross and die on the cross, and his disciples are going to scatter and they're going to be troubled in heart and full of fear. He's saying, "I am true." One of the commentators puts it this way. He says that this reminds us of the complete reliability of Jesus, the complete reliability of Jesus, and all he does and is. He is true. And he says, Jesus says, "I am the life." This is the goal of it all. This is, this is uh, the word we see Christ using in John for, for the goal of it all, that we might have eternal life. That's communion with God, fellowship with God and the kingdom of God. Christ is saying, this eternal life that I've been promising you and calling you to, it's me. It's not a thing. It's not a thing I give you. No, it's me. It's having fellowship with me. You get life when you get me. Are you trusting in me? Then you have life, eternal life. Now, earlier we saw the goal is the Father's house. Jesus said he's taking us to his Father. But he also says he's taking us to himself. And so we've seen it's both. It's God the Father and God the Son. And we see that again here. Jesus says, I am the life, I am the goal. And then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. So so the goal is, is the Father and the Son together. It's the Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity. Fellowship with our triune God. As Jesus says here, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, I am. That's that's the name of Yahweh, God of the Old Testament. He is claiming to be very God of very God. He'll go on to say in verse 10, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Jesus is weaving these ideas together. And this is the point. This is what he's telling Thomas. Everything God is, I am. I am God become flesh, and, and, and I have made a full provision for you. The source, the means, and the end of a full salvation. The beginning, the middle, the end of it all. I'm, I'm going to make sure it happens from start to finish, so don't let your heart be troubled. I am the way, and no one can pull you off that way. I am the truth, and you can utterly depend on me. I am the life, the goal of it all. If you believe in me, you will never die. And again, what can trouble the heart that is resting in this Christ? The way, the truth, and the life. Can a virus, political unrest, turmoil, personal suffering, loss, death, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Well, we've been considering the remedy, the one remedy, for the troubled heart in this passage. But in closing, I want to draw your attention to one more troubled heart that we see in the context. It's not mentioned explicitly here in the words of John fourteen one through 6. But it's, it's there. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know it's there reading these words here, right? These, these words are so serene, so full of comfort. But Jesus' heart is troubled. Troubled far more deeply than the disciples' hearts are troubled. We're told this in John 12:27, as Jesus predicts his crucifixion, He says, "Now my soul is troubled." We're told again in John 13:21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. Think about that. Jesus Christ is troubled. The God man, His heart is troubled. Was there ever a heart so perfectly resting in God? What would it take to trouble such a heart? It's not the physical pain of the coming crucifixion, the, the scourging and the crown of thorns and the nails being, be, be, being hung on the cross. It's not all that. It, it's that. It's that He's staring hell in the face as He's going to the cross. He is facing the full outpouring of God's wrath for sin, for your sin and mine, bearing those sins in His body, suffering for them on the cross. He's being made sin for us. And that's why his heart is troubled. That's why Christ's glorious loving heart, fully resting in God, is at the same time troubled. But even as he's experiencing this troubled heart, this is the marvelous thing here. He doesn't focus on himself. He, his focus is on the disciples. John 31 says this, "...having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end." We see that love so richly here in these words. It saturates these words. Love for his disciples and love for you and for me. He is, as it were, standing between us and the wrath of God. And the full force of that wrath of God is going to to consume him, but none of it is going to reach us. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, Jesus is troubled that you might not be. That is why, dear brothers and sisters, do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus' heart was troubled instead so that yours might not be. And he's preparing a place for you. And he is, he is going to take you to himself because he loves you. And he's made full provision, brothers and sisters, for our complete salvation, that we might be there with himself forever. So let's trust in Christ. Let's pray together.